You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. Our scripture reading is uh, from 1 Kings 18, 41 to 46. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look towards the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again seven times. And at the seventh time he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Hayab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. This is God's word. Man, thanks, Oladoyen. Would you pray with me? And uh, we can begin. Let's pray. Well, Father, it's uh, a foolish thing, at least in the eyes of our world, that you would see fit to continue to speak to us through your word. But we join now with your people throughout history and your people all throughout the world in putting ourselves under your word and asking that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would speak to us through this, your word, that we would know you to be the true and living God. And even through this passage, we would know our Lord Jesus Christ to be our hope and our savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> uh, well, we've been looking uh, in this brief sermon series at uh, two of the most famous prophets of the people of Israel, Elijah and Elisha, and they ministered in a, a time of profound decline in the nation of Israel. A civil war had taken place, and ten tribes joined with the northern kingdom, two tribes joined with the southern kingdom. And at the time of the particular passage you just heard read, there is a king in power. His name is Ahab, and he is a horrendous king. Out of political expediency, he married a woman named Jezebel, the king of Sidon, and she brings with her all of her false gods from Sidon, especially the god Baal, who was the god of rain and fertility, into Israel and pollutes Israel with this false worship. If you have a Bible, you'll see in 1 Kings 15, verse 33, we read that Ahab did more to provoke the God of Israel to anger than all the other kings before him. That's what Ahab is known for. That's probably why you don't have a lot of friends named Ahab. And young boys, that's why you don't bring home a girl named Jezebel and introduce her to mom and dad. This is a bad time, and these are not the kind of people that you want to be known by, uh, at least as the Bible records it. So what has happened? I know a lot of you uh, have, haven't been able to be in all these sermons. So what has happened up to this point is that um, Elijah goes to Ahab and says, As a prophet of God, 
I know and I declare there will be a drought in this particular land, and it's going to be a very, very serious drought. And the drought came about um, because the false worship had polluted God's people. This was a serious drought that resulted in mass starvation, I'm sure. It had tremendous economic consequences to uh, this particular culture. And in a society that was supposed to be uniquely theocratic, it was supposed to have uh, God's unique hand of blessing upon it. For over three years, there is a horrendous drought that comes upon the land. But our God decides that his punishment has, uh, the time has come for his punishment to wrap up. He's punished them enough, and he decides he's going to send the rain. But as we discussed last week, if he sends the rain, he runs the risk of people believing that Baal sent the rain, that the false god Baal actually finally answered the prayers and sacrifice and sent rain. So last week, what happened? We talked about this. He sets up this duel between himself and Baal. They have their uh, sacrifices on the altar, and ultimately the fire does not come down on Baal's sacrifice, but it comes down on the sacrifice to the God of Israel. And all of Israel, all of God's people declare their loyalty to God, saying, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They were witnesses to the duel, and now they proclaim their loyalty to the God of Israel afresh. And the duel was an incredible moment. It's a, it a gripping story that we looked at last week. But in some senses, that was just the setup for this climax. Because God has won the duel and showed himself to be the living God, greater than the Baals, but there's still a drought in the land. There's still, the, the economy is still paralyzed. There's still mass starvation the people have declared their loyalty to the living God, but they're waiting for the rain. And my hunch is that this passage might be something, might teach us something of a lesson to some of the hardest questions and the hardest dilemma of the Christian life, whether you believe or don't believe. And it's this. Christianity proclaims that something like a duel took place on the cross. God and his son Jesus Christ defeated evil. He defeated Satan. He destroyed the power of sin, which had held us uh, in bondage and prevented us from having a relationship with our Creator. All of this stuff atoned for on the cross. And we say the duel was won. And yet, ours is still a world of profound injustice. Who among us feels as though sometimes your prayers have not been heard? Sin's addictive power and taste continue to entrap and enslave us. We don't feel as though we've been set free. Our world does not quite feel like it's the world of salvation we had hoped for or promised to be. We live in this time between the victory of the duel and the bringing of the rain. This is where we are as a people. The duel on the cross has won. The Lord has promised to bring rain, to bring new life, to bring new creation for us. This is the spiritual life the life of faith that we're trapped in. And I think this passage is going to give us at least three things we can understand about this life of faith. I think we're going to see a posture that we ought to take in the life of faith. Then we're going to see the, a pattern that the life of faith often follows. And finally, the project that we are set on in the life of faith. So we have the posture, the pattern, and the project of the life of faith. So again, I'm, I'm trying to say that what, what we see here is God's victory has been declared, okay? His people have said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Maybe we could bring it up to our day. They've asked Jesus into their heart. <laughs> but there's still mass starvation. There's still no rain in the land. They're worshiping Jesus with hands held high. They're celebrating. 
And yet, there's still profound injustice. All is not right. Things are broken. What's the posture of a life of faith between the victory of the duel and between the bringing of the rain? Well, the posture we see here comes in verse 42. Ahab hears from Elijah that there's rain coming. And Elijah tells him, go up on the mountain and have a feast. Now, I don't have time to, or it's not best use of my time to explain this to you, but some pictures here taking place when God's kings go up to mountains and have feasts. This is a picture of a restored relationship between God and his nation through the king. So Ahab goes up, he has the feast, and what does Elijah do? Look at verse 42. He bows his head to the earth and places his head between his knees. What is the posture of the life of faith? Now, the the passage doesn't exactly tell us what he's doing while he bows his head to the earth with his head between his knees, but we have to know. We have to know what he's doing. He's praying. He's praying in utter humility with nothing to offer before the Lord. On his knees, he's begging the Lord that the Lord might hear. And this is the posture of the life of faith. It's one of humble prayer between the duel and the bringing of the rain. It's interesting, if you remember the story, Elijah knows that the drought was going to come, but he also knows that the drought is going to end. He's received direct word from God that the drought will end. And throughout all of Elijah's life, he's been demanding of people. He's demanded the entire nation to come and witness the duel. He's gathered up 850 false prophets of Baal. He slaughtered them. He's now told King Ahab, hey, Ahab, go up and eat. It's time. And Ahab says, yes, prophet, I will do what you say. This is a man who speaks, and people are listening. He's a man of power, but hear me clearly. He doesn't for a second, for a second, let it go to his head. He's reduced to the ground. He knows the life of faith. It's not a life of cocky, arrogant, hubris, and pride. It's a life of humility, submission, exhibited in prayer. He knows that everything that has happened up to this point in his life did not happen because of his power, because of his wisdom, because of his goodness. Every blessing that he's experienced up to this point had come from the hand of God, and if the rain was ever going to come, it was going to come the same way every other blessing had come. It was going to come from the hand of God too. Elijah knows he and the nation don't deserve the rain to come. He's humble enough to know his feeble mind might not fully understand how God is going to enact his plans. And so he takes the posture of the life of faith, which is a posture of humble, submissive prayer, on his knees, face to the ground. Lord, I might not be understanding exactly what you said correctly. I don't understand your timing. Your ways are mysterious, but oh Lord, bring the rain. Bring the rain. Don't let your people suffer anymore. Now compare this posture to the posture of prayer Maybe probably the most seen prayer on YouTube, at least in the past uh, year and a half or so. Somewhat embarrassing. I don't know if anyone knows the name Kenneth Copeland. If you don't, it's no big deal. Um, I'm not recommending you watch much of what you'll find. But he went quite viral on YouTube, uh, not for reasons he understood, because he commanded COVID-19 to be done, to go away. In arrogance, he blew it away. He commanded it to be gone. His prayer was deemed misinformation and pulled down and later put back on, but millions and millions of people have seen it, and COVID continues to linger and cause consequences in our world. He was so heavily mocked that 
heavy metal guitar players turned his prayer into a sort of a heavy metal song. And the remix bros, I think, have over 5 million views on the way in which they turn this prayer into a song utterly to mock him. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll make my reservations about other thoughts I have about what he has to say here. But I will say this. This is not the posture of the life of faith between the duel and the reign. The posture of the life of faith is on the knees, face on the ground. Lord, I'm not sure that I understand your ways. You have made promises And I want you to answer them. Have mercy, Lord, but I know that I am not wise enough to understand your ways. Now, what does this mean for us? What is our posture in prayer? You know, how would we respond? I mean, what if I had uh, someone in physio come and measure our ability to kneel? I'd be scared to see uh, where we're at if any of us could kneel down and put our head on the ground and put our head between our knees. It wouldn't look good. And those of you who could do it probably is more from yoga than it is from prayer. I'm not saying that this is necessarily a posture you must take, although for some of you it wouldn't hurt. Well, it actually would hurt, but it wouldn't hurt at least emotionally to uh, bow yourself to the floor. For some of you, it's really going to hurt if you've not kneeled for a long time. But this is the posture that, that, that we at least, is not, it's not being prescribed to us, but it's an attitude of our heart that we ought to take into our prayer closets, into our time of prayer with our Lord. Submissive humility. And I fear most of us come to our Lord And we come with a posture of unbelief, thinking God doesn't really want to hear us and he doesn't really want to answer our prayers. We come to the Lord with a posture of apathy, taking for granted the fact that the the creator of the heavens and the earth has lent an ear to hear us as we pray. We come to the Lord with a posture of entitlement. We assume we know what's best for ourselves and we demand of God to conform his mind to our mind. The Bible teaches us, 1 Peter 5, verse 7, cast all your anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you. A great verse to, to memorize as you think about prayer. But what comes right before verse 7? Verse 6, where we're told to humble ourselves under the hand of God. What is the posture of the life of prayer? Commands and demands towards our Lord? No. Between the duel and the bringing of the rain, as we still participate in seasons of drought, We take on the posture of humble submission. Now let's look at the pattern of the life of faith. What is the pattern that we see Elijah taking here? What's the template that this passage uh, gives to us? Now let me remind you. Elijah in chapter 17, verse 1, says that there's a drought coming. Now Elijah doesn't actually say God told him there's a drought coming. He, He most likely understood a drought was coming because he was reading Deuteronomy 11. He was reading Solomon's prayer of dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8. And there it was declared very obviously and very clearly when disobedience came, when God's people chased after foreign gods, a drought would come. And so because Elijah knows God's word, he's able to stand before the king and declare that a drought is indeed coming. But in in chapter 18, verse 1, he supernaturally hears from God that the drought is going to come to an end. And in verse 41, he hears this noise. There's the sound of the rushing, rushing rain. And what happens? Well, in verse 43, what does he do? He sends his servant. He says, go look at the sea. Obviously, the sea is where the storm is going to cook up, which is going to bring rain onto the land. Go see, go, go look out. What, what does he see, his servant? Nothing. Can you imagine? The servant goes up, scans the horizon towards the sea, comes back and says, Elijah, I don't know what to tell you. There's nothing. Not a cloud in the sky. This doesn't deter Elijah. He stays in his position of prayer. He begs the Lord a second time, sends out a servant. 
Servant scans the horizon. My guess is takes a second and third and fourth look while he's up there. Comes down to Elijah. Uh, Elijah, I don't know what to tell you. There's not a cloud in the sky. Not a problem. Elijah prays fervently. Sends him up. Third time. Fourth time. Fifth time. Sixth time. Sixth time the servant comes back. Elijah. Elijah, there's not even, a, there's not even an ounce of wind. Elijah, there's, there is no cloud in the sky. Elijah is not deterred. He's a man of fervent prayer. Seven times he sends up his servant, and what does his servant see? Elijah, there's a cloud, but it's about the size of a man's hand. Now, I don't know how many rainstorms you've been trapped in with a cloud the size of a man's hand, but it's not necessarily one that will end a drought. And immediately Elijah knows the rain's coming. Sisters, brothers, this is the pattern of the life of faith, what we see in Elijah. Knowing God's promises, hearing his promises clearly, taking them to the Lord in prayer, and scanning the horizons, and reminding yourself of God's promises, taking them to the Lord in prayer, and scanning the horizons, morning, evening, night, over and over again. The pattern, the, the, the pattern of the life of faith is this, saints, research and prayer. Research what God has told us we can expect of this world, we can expect of Him, and pray until we see it. Scan the horizon and do it all over again. This is the pattern. This is the template of the life of faith. Taking God's promises to Him, holding Him to them, asking Him to deliver on them, and scanning the horizon again and again and again. God's plan The plans he ordains is to send rain. But he has ordained not only the ends, he's also ordained the means to the ends. And the means to the ends is this, that Elijah's going to pray, and he's 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 going to hear and see nothing. This is how our God delights to work. God's will is certainly not limited to the prayers of his people. He can execute his plans however he wants. But he seems to highly prefer roll out his plans, his will, his decrees through the prayers of his people. He's not limited to this channel, but he sure delights in using this channel to execute his plans. You know, in some ways, God is like any other father or mother who uh, has a young child who wants to work alongside of them. You know, when you're out fixing the lawnmower or you're, you're cleaning something, your little child comes and says, oh, can I help? And we all know full and well that the child is going to be of no real help. But it gives us great delight to do what? To watch them spray the Windex and leave smear marks all over the window, you know? It gives us great delight to watch them hand to us the rung wrench. Why? Because we want to be with our kids. We want to be near our children. And our Lord isn't much different. His work that he has done, he wants our hearts to be melded, with it, melded into his hearts. He executes his decrees. He executes his plans through the saints of his people. The promises of God, hear me clearly. What I'm trying to say is this. The pattern is this. You find the promises of God. You bring them to the Lord. And you scan the horizon over and over and over again. And what I'm trying to say is this, that the promises of God don't render prayer unnecessary, but the promises of God make prayer mandatory, because this is how God delights to bring his promises into their fulfillment into your life and into our world. This is the pattern that we have in the life of faith. 
we research, we pray. We research, we pray. Let me, let me be abundantly practical. What am I talking about? What are some promises that we get in God's word? Look, is anyone in here somewhat scared? Anyone else in here somewhat scared of the future? You know, worried about this thing called inflation spiraling out of control, feeling insecure about where you will be in the future with the decisions you've made? Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 teach us that our Lord will never leave us. He will never forsake us. In the face of that fear, what do you pray? Lord, you have said you will never leave us. You will never forsake us. I feel forsaken. Lord, it feels as though you're not here. Lord, draw near to me that I might know your presence again. And you scan the horizon. And when you still feel God is distant, what do you do? Go right back to your knees and do it over and over again. What about temptation? Anyone tempted to disobey God at his word, to harm others, to harm your relationships, harm those you love? 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has seized you that's not common to humanity, but God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when tempted, he will provide a way out. He promised. What does it mean in the, temp- in the throes of temptation? Feeling overwhelmed to hop right back in that cyclical pattern you know is toxic. What does it mean? Lord, you promised a way out. And I'll, I'll be quite honest with you, I don't see it right now. This temptation feels as though I have been overwhelmed by it. Lord, help. Amen. You scan the horizon. You feel overwhelmed. You go right back. You say the prayer again and again and again. Anyone feel that God's upset with you? I don't know that God's angry at you. He's disappointed in you. He's not, he's not, he doesn't have any desire to see you as part of his child. Do you ever feel that way? Romans 8, 20, 39. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Friends, these are the promises when you are discouraged that you must pray and the Lord delights to make his plans and to execute his plans through your prayers. But let me tell you, some of you go to the prayer closet four and five times and you hang up, you, 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 you hang it up too early. You give up too quickly. The Lord has not only ordained the ends, he's ordained the means to get to that end. And some of those means mean seven times and more you're going to ask. God has promised rain is going to come. Elijah knows it. He has God at his word, and it doesn't hold him back from praying. In fact, he prays even more fervently. When God intends to bestow blessings, the way he does it is he stirs up his people to become people of prayer. I could tell you story after story of people who prayed that a church plant would come in this neighborhood that I walked into and shared this story about how we were going to start a new church in this neighborhood, and people were really excited about it. They have no idea people have been praying for a long time. I didn't even have any idea how many people had been praying. I arrogantly assumed this was all something the Lord had put on my wonderful heart and my wonderful mind to execute. You have no idea. You have no idea. The Lord loves to bestow his blessings on his people, and he does it by stirring them up to pray. This is the pattern of the life of faith. Research, prayer, scan the horizon. Research, prayer, scan the horizon. Don't give up. Now let's just end by looking at the project of the life of faith. We've looked at the posture, the pattern of the life of faith, and then the pattern of the life of faith. Now let's look at this project of the life of the faith. What is God doing? Why doesn't he bring the rain immediately, okay? Why do we have this intermission? It would have been great right after the duel, the second the fire consumes that sacrifice, that the rain come pouring down. Why doesn't the Lord do it? Why not? 
well, I don't fully understand all of God's ways, and I won't pretend to have a lock on why he doesn't send rain immediately. But we get some hints in this passage. Rain is obviously coming. And Elijah tells Ahab, hey, you're gonna get, your wheels are going to get stuck in the mud. You don't have four by four back in the day on your chariots. Uh, you better get out of here before the rain starts coming hard. And verse 46 gives us this very strange fact. It says this, The hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he runs ahead to, to Jezreel. So Ahab's taking his royal chariot, and they're going to Jezreel from Mount Carmel. We're talking about 30 kilometers. And for some reason, we get this weird note that Elijah goes ahead of the royal chariots and paves the way to get to Jezreel. What is happening here to us? Now, this might not be immediately clear to you, the average Bible reader, and it wasn't immediately clear to me as well, but Bible commentators see it more clearly, and here's what's happening. This is a symbol, a picture. The king was always to follow in the tracks of the prophet. The prophet would tell the king God's word, and the king would obey God's word by following after the words of the prophet. So what do we see happening here? Hear me clearly, and I'll try to, try to wrap this up. Hear me clearly. Ahab is known as the worst king of Israel. He's provoked the God of Israel more than all other kings before him. The Bible has made that abundantly clear. But what, what's happening here? Why has God delayed the rain? He's given Ahab a 30-kilometer bumpy car ride to have another chance. To demand and declare his loyalty to the God of Israel because he knows, God knows, he's going back to Jezreel. He's going to meet up with Jezebel. He has to implement this loyalty far and wide. What is the Lord doing to the worst king? The worst king. The one who did more to provoke God to anger than any other. Why is he delaying the rain? Because he loves Ahab. He's given Ahab another shot. Friends, I don't know who needs to hear this, but on Mother's Day, you got to hear me. Our Lord isn't going to give up. Our Lord isn't going to give up. That's why he doesn't bring the rain right away. That's why there's a gap between the duel and the bringing of the rain. A gap between the cross and the new creation. Because he's not giving up. Some of your kids, they might feel like a lost cause. He's not giving up. He's patient. He wants them to know. He wants them to know his great love for them. If he loved Ahab, my goodness, there's none of us that could produce a child worse than Ahab. If he loved Ahab, that he was willing to delay the rain, to give Ahab this time to, to, to understand God's grace afresh, to see it one more time, my goodness, could he not be delaying the rain in our life, delaying the bringing of the new creation, delaying the fullness of justice raining down, that one more of our children might come to know and understand. One more of our neighbors might come to realize God's kindness, his mercy towards them, that they might find themselves following after God's world, following after God's word as they wait for the fullness of the rain to come. No one is too lost. No one is too gone. Not even Ahab. Don't forget that. This is the plan of the life of faith. Is the plan is this, that God is giving yet one more opportunity for Ahab to understand God's wonderful, kind, loyal, and faithful and gracious love. He's given Ahab one more chance. And this is the, pa this is the plan this is why there's a gap between the cross and the new creation. That everyone might come to know the wonderful love and kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ. That everyone might come to know the greatness of his sacrifice for our sins. This is our hope. Friends, let me conclude this way. What happened on the cross tells me that without a doubt, 
because of what Jesus did by atoning for all of our sins, providing for us a relationship with our Creator, and because God raised Him from the dead on the third day, without a doubt, rain's coming. New creation's coming. You won't be the victim of injustice forever. You won't feel like your prayers disappear into nothing forever. You won't be plagued by doubts forever. You will walk by sight, not by faith. The day is coming. The rain will come. The land will flourish again. New creation is coming in. But in between now and then, the posture the Lord is telling you to take is this posture of humble, hum, 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 humble submission to the Lord. Lord, I have no idea why you're letting me go through what I am going through. Oh, Lord, I have no idea, but you have promised this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is the, this is the posture. He's given us a pattern, research, prayer, scan the horizon, and he's told us the plan. He's going to be patient because he wants all to come to know that Christ died for them, Christ rose for them, Christ will come again for them, that they might experience his great love throughout all of eternity. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the promise that you are coming to make all things new. That that which is broken will be fixed, that which is stained and scarred will be beautiful again, that which seems to reek of injustice will smell the fragrance of justice once again, that all will be made right, no one will feel short-changed. Father, we also know that you have promised that you'll never leave us or forsake us, and yet in this in-between it feels as though your decision to bring back your son to heaven to sit at your right hand produces doubts and difficulties in our minds. Father, remind us of your great love for us in Christ and make us into the type of people who really do believe that we get to participate in praying in your plans, your promises, praying in your blessings into this world. Make us a people committed to pray like this, like Elijah. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.